Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in the podcast series In Conversation from Oxford University Press. And today I'm very happy to say we're talking with Thomas C. Holt about his terrific book, The Movement, The African-American Struggle for Civil Rights, just out from Oxford University Press. Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Absolutely my pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I guess that the part of my personal background most relevant to uh, the the book project is that, uh, first of all, I'm Southern born, um, born and raised in uh, Southside Virginia, uh, Danville, Virginia, which is one of the um, one of the major places where civil rights activities and movements took place in the um, early 1960s. Um, uh, it also, <laughs> when I was growing up, had the uh, it celebrated itself as the last capital of the Confederacy. <laughs> uh, that was where uh, the Confederate government. Jeff Davis and all moved um, as Grant was coming into Richmond and Sherman was coming up from the south. Um, so they stayed there a few days uh, in, um, um, in the city. Um, and in fact, uh, they were housed in a, in a home that later became a library. Um, and in fact, it became the, I should say, the white library uh, in town um, that uh, people like me going to school could not uh, enter to um, um, uh, do our schoolwork. In fact, uh, uh, there was a court case later on um, in the late 50s, I forget exactly the year that I was in high school, uh, about the segregation of the library. Anyway, so that's the the broader background. Um, I went to segregated schools, of course, um, and uh, basically lived in a, uh, a separate community. Um, and um, with the uh, typical kinds of institutions, churches and other uh, separate organizations and so forth uh, in that community. Um, so that's where and how I got involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, there were shortly after Birmingham, uh, there were demonstrations in Danville um, protesting a wide range of issues. Um, and um, uh, not only access to public accommodations, but uh, municipal employment, which was segregated, uh, treatment in department stores, which was uh, discriminatory, and so forth. Um, Anyway, I got involved there, um, and among the groups that came to work in uh, uh, to assist with the movement in Danville were uh, people from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and so I, along with other young people, gravitated to that. I became a volunteer with SNCC, um, and um, later on, in fact, after I graduated college, I in 1965. <clears throat> I went, continued to work with SNCC, uh, this time in Cambridge, Maryland, which was another hot spot of the uh, uh, civil rights activity during the, uh, during the 1960s, early 1960s. Um, 
after that, um, I also uh, became involved uh, helping, actually in Cambridge, um, helping, um, uh, trying to help or assist the organization of migrant farm workers because the eastern shore of Maryland, where Cambridge was located, was a, a kind of, you know, breadbasket or farming area supplying tomatoes and uh, vegetables and so forth to markets elsewhere. And they brought up migrant workers from uh, Florida and other parts in the, uh, the lower south to work during the summers. And so I became familiar with the kind of problems associated with that. And so happens that when I got a job uh, coming out of uh, uh, college, uh, I went to work with the poverty program. Uh, and the part of the poverty program that dealt with migrants and seasonal farm workers. Uh, it's a program that provided uh, housing, uh, uh, education for, for youth, um, job training, and so forth. Because as it was seen then, there was a necessity not only in helping people, um, uh, period, but also that uh, there was a transition underway in which people would become uh, increasingly unemployed uh, in that in, in farm work as mechanization took over. And so, um, so that was the background of um, actually my, my early adulthood before I then returned to school and uh, studied history, which of course then I have been teaching since the 1970s and retired just last year. I, this is not on the list of questions I sent you, but I kind of have to ask it. Uh, I, I'm a medievalist, and so I never got a chance to meet or interact with any of the people I wrote about. How, how did the fact that you were a part of the movement affect the way that you wrote the movement? I think that was a, a major uh, impact um, uh, and in terms of perspective. In fact, some of what I write about in the book is drawn I mean, some of it, of course, is drawn from a, a rather substantial literature now on various places and people in the movement. But I would say the core of it is from my own experience and uh, the people I engage with and my own feelings, um, my own sense of, of purpose and so forth. Um, so, uh, and, you know, it was also a context in which you met people coming from different parts of the country, uh, depending on where you were, um, and, uh, and in different circumstances that I'd grown up with in my own particular corner of the South. Uh, the Eastern Shore of Maryland, for example, I said it was, you know, uh, uh, farming, um, but not tobacco farming as in my area where I grew up and that my family had worked in, um, but also um, uh, the uh, uh, seafood industry, uh, they can, the canning companies were located in, um, uh, in and around Cambridge. And that was a, yet a different set of uh, labor practices, economic conditions, and so forth. So, uh, so all of that was very much a part of uh, shaping my own sense of the movement, broadly speaking. 
You begin the book with the story of Carrie Lee Fitzgerald, of whom I had never heard. Could you tell us a little bit about her and why you began the book with her story? Uh, yes. Um, uh, this was my maternal grandmother. Really? Yes. Wow. Um, and we, um, I mean, I grew up, um, basically, I should say she raised me because uh, uh, she lived with my mother and father while I was, um, um, uh, I guess, from the time I was born until about 10, maybe 11 years old. And so I spent a great deal of time with her. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, in the course of that, she told me many stories about the place where we lived, the history of the family, the background, and so forth. She didn't tell me much about herself. <laughs> you know, maybe that was typical, actually, but interestingly enough. Um, and much of which I would learn later. And the reason I begin the book with her is because she, um, uh, my mother told me a story, actually, uh, some years after her death, my grandmother's death, um, about how in 1944, uh, when I was still a babe in arms, my mother had gone with her to Lynchburg, which is a town in the middle of uh, Virginia, about 60 miles from Danville, north of Danville. And she was there because of her husband, my grandfather, who um, uh, was actually dying of uh, uh, kidney disease. And uh, after the visit, that particular visit, which was, uh, the, I think was the last time she actually saw him alive, uh, she, she was taking the bus, as would be practiced in, uh, not very many cars, uh, uh, back to Danville. And uh, an incident occurred that the family would call the sort of uh, Rosa Parks moment. Uh, that is, um, the bus had been, uh, was crowded with a bunch of students as well as other passengers um, when she got on. And so, and so she was standing. And at that point, she was 66 years old. She was standing, and she, someone got up to leave, and she took the seat. And the bus driver told her she had to go back to the back where the black people sat. And she refused. Uh, and uh, as it turned out, she was not arrested, uh, as happened in some other cases that I, I talk about in the book, about the same time. But... Um, uh, she and, and was able to ride, you know, all the way home, um, having integrated the bus. <laughs> I'd say, um, anyway, that story, uh, you know, stuck with me. Um, and as I was contemplating writing this book, or as and I thought about it, a lot of the uh, the principal themes that I wanted to talk about in the book seemed to be. Um, captured in that in that story. I mean, not only what happened at that particular moment, where you know a big part of the book is how ordinary people, you know, were the the motor, uh, the driving force behind the movement. Not great leaders, but ordinary people, of which my grandmother was one. Um, but also, there had been changes happening in the South, which I talk about in the book that made possible the kind of resistance that would emerge later. 
Uh, now, this was 1944. Those changes were much more advanced by 1955 when Rosa Parks was arrested, of course, and what we think of as the beginning of the, uh, of the what's called sometimes classic civil rights movement. Um, uh, that is my family that had been, you know, and like most people in the rural South, farmers were no longer working uh, on a farm. Um, most were uh, uh, in uh, urban, either Southern or Northern uh, industries during the war. Um, uh, others were uh, some of her, two of her sons, my, uh, or rather one of her sons, one of her sons and one of her, her, uh, her um, uh, son-in-law, my, my father, were actually in the war, um, one in Normandy, um, uh, and was part of the Normandy invasion um, that happened later that summer. And the other, my father, in the Pacific. Um, and um, so those kind of contradictions all play a role in, in what my explanation of how the movement arose, how it developed in the way that it did. And uh, they were all present in that story uh, of my grandmother. And so it seemed uh, appropriate to, in a, in a short book, to try to capture that in the experience of this one person and who happened to be the person who raised me, my grandmother. Well, it's wonderfully told. Thank you for sharing that. You make a distinction at this moment in the book between, and I had not heard the phrases, the long civil rights movement and the civil rights movement proper, which you say began in 1955. As I say, I wasn't familiar. Is Can you tell us a little bit about that distinction? Yeah, um, that's, um, I guess, among the motivations, too, um, uh, or at least the background to my thinking that I had something to contribute to this uh, and telling the story of the civil rights movement, from my perspective, was that um, during the, um, I guess, uh, perhaps toward the end, the 1990s, early 21st century, um, uh, a theme began to emerge among historians writing about the civil rights movement uh, that focused on um, earlier struggles, that it was part of, and some would say merely a part of, a long struggle uh, around uh, issues of racial oppression and discrimination. Um, and that in itself is, you know, I think uh, um, certainly quite uh, valid, quite true. Uh, and in fact, in my book, I begin with incidents back in the 1950s, 1850s in the Civil War era, some of the tactics and so forth that would appear in the 1950s and 60s had been, you know, uh, pioneered, you might say, boycotts and sit-ins and so forth and so on. Um, as early as the, the previous century. But there's a kind of, um, um, as I guess often happens, as you're aware, in kind of historical writing, the next new thing, of a, a shift in that, um, what was called the long civil rights movement to uh, effectively 
see the movement of the 50s and 60s as somehow, um, I call it in another thing I've written, uh, a wrong turn. That is that there was an earlier movement that focused on on uh, labor issues, on economic issues, and and somehow that was more legitimate, uh, especially out of the 30s and 1940s. And that somehow that was more legitimate than what happens from the mid-60s on, uh, where the focus is on school integration, on uh, lunch counter desegregation, on um, uh, bus uh, segregation as described, uh, you know, in the case of uh, Rosa Parks. Um, and I thought that that was a, a misreading, a misunderstanding of the motivation, of the driving forces behind, and actually what enabled the movement to happen. Because um, it, there's a tendency to sort of trivialize it because it's, you know, it's all about consumption. It's about, you know, buying a bus ticket or buying a theater ticket or a restaurant or... Uh, and actually, it was much more than that. And I think that was expressed in my, for example, in my grandmother's story, where it was the pure visceral uh, feeling of insult. And I mean, it's sort of like, <laughs> interestingly enough, the, the uh, current uh, slogan, Black Lives Matter, that it goes to the core of your very being, of your very humanity. And so it wasn't about, as Ella Baker once pointed out, it wasn't about getting, uh, 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 getting a Coke, you know. That wasn't the issue. The issue <laughs> was, uh, or about the service, the issue was about the uh, humiliation that is inherent in uh, a certain way that the Jim Crow uh, regime was practiced. And I think that that reached people and enabled a mobilization to a far greater extent than um, some of the, what many people at the time would have said were, you know, certainly uh, uh, really important issues like employment and like voting and, and so forth. But that this was something that was, uh, as I, in the language of my students, I say, you know, in your face, <laughs> you know, this kind of confrontation. And, uh, and I thought that, that it was important to explain that because Otherwise, you know, there's a tendency in some of the writing even to seemingly dis, well, maybe not disparage, but certainly discount and, and underestimate what happened between, in that decade, between the mid-1950s and the mid to late 60s. Um, and so, so that was my beef with how the long civil rights movement had morphed over time, and to be a kind of critique of what was otherwise called the classic civil rights movement, meaning the period from the mid-50s to, uh, to the 60s, uh, mm-hmm. that decade. So then 1955 is really different in a way than what preceded it. Can you talk a little bit about how the conditions were set prior to 1955 that allowed what happened in 1955 and the decade that followed to transpire? What were some of the precursors or how was the ground prepared? Yeah. Yeah, uh, So, yeah. I mean, so first of all, the first point is that there had long been struggle. People were not passive or simply accepting 
the Jim Crow system. But as I um, uh, go to great lengths to try to underscore the conditions of life, uh, political, social, economic, of the majority of the black population in this country up until the World War II, uh, to some extent up until World War I, when it began to change, was that the overwhelming majority lived in the South. I mean, in 1900, there was still 90% of uh, black Americans were in the South, and about 80% of them were in uh, rural areas working on either small farms or plantations, depending on where they were. That creates a whole different set of constructs, of controls, of limitations, um, that while, although people could and did resist, there were, you know, there are stories of that, you know, in Arkansas and Mississippi and Georgia and so forth, um, uh, courageous resistance, you know, during those, that period, it posed considerable obstacles to any kind of successful uh, or sustained resistance to the, what I call the Jim Crow regime, which is all the mechanisms by which uh, black people were kept down. Um, and so as long as people, particularly on the large plantations, where um, Nan Woodruff has written a book about Mississippi describing uh, plantation uh, organization where, you know, the company store is on the plantation. So you get all your food, your goods through that company store. Um, your mail, oftentimes, on these huge plantations would be a post office on the plantation. So your mail could be monitored. Uh, obviously, your movements were monitored. Um, so it, it was like a kind of second slavery, even. Under those conditions, the possibility of you know, mobilizing um, uh, a resistance movement, uh, to say the least, are daunting, if not, to some extent, in some places, impossible, especially given the, also the prevalence of, of racial violence uh, throughout this period. So what happens, though, with the great migration that's set off by World War I uh, is that people, of course, move out of the rural areas, out of the South, um, over a decade and a half, about a million and a half people, um, and into northern uh, cities at that time. Later on with World War II, it would be yet a larger movement and going west as well as going north. And you create a, um, a situation in which, one, people are able to organize and develop uh, uh, contexts in the northern states, places like New York or Chicago, that can be supportive of movements that emerge in the South, which happened in the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, and in the South itself, uh, people not only had gone north, they went to southern cities. So Birmingham, Montgomery, Greensboro, Nashville, all those cities grow dramatically. Uh, uh, that's the black population, I mean, white population too, but certainly the black population. And their living situations are entirely different, uh, or at least I shouldn't say entirely, but certainly substantially different in that now you're not 
living on the same place that you worked. You're not under the direct, you know, uh, supervision or, uh, you know, uh, surveillance of your employer as you are and, and his henchmen as you are on a plantation or even on a sharecropping uh, farm, small farm. Uh, you are not uh, under control not only of that, your employer for your uh, wages, but also for your housing and often for your, as I said, given the arrangements under the uh, sharecropping and tenancy, sharecropping system at least, uh, for your, your food as well. So, you know, you're in a totally different position, even though it's not that it's, it's nirvana in, you know, Montgomery or Birmingham <laughs> or whatever, but you are no longer under that kind of surveillance. So the possibility of uh, of churches as a space, and, they, and many of them develop large churches, uh, of social clubs, of, uh, of colleges, of uh, many other spaces in which people can be gathered and later become places from which they can mobilize uh, out of the eyeshot, eyesight of people who would suppress them. Uh, I mean, that, that job is left now to the police as opposed to your, the, the plantation boss. So it creates, a, it creates an entirely different situation uh, for uh, enabling um, the successful mobilization of a social movement than had existed before. And that's you know, developed gradually over time from World War I through the migration of World War II. And then by the mid-50s, it is uh, post-World War II, it is ripe for the kind of um, uh, actions, social actions that we see uh, that constitute the, the civil rights movement. And that's why it's it's a different ball game, if you will, by the mid fifties. Than there were struggles before, but they were fighting against different odds and different contexts. Um, uh, people were never satisfied or complacent about you know the Jim Crow regime and the conditions under which they lived, but their capacities and the tools they had at at, at their hand to uh, formulate a resistance strategy were different. There are a number of other things too. Of course, there's the uh, uh, that's sort of what's on the ground level. Um, more broader things are the international context following World War II, the Cold War, and other uh, developments that situate um, uh, uh, blocks differently in terms of uh, having a, a potential allies and support. Uh, and of course, the other theme uh, is are changes in the national government itself with the New Deal and the Roosevelt administration followed by the Truman administration. All of those also factor into uh, uh, creating a possibility of, of getting some movement uh, at the national level and through national laws that were not possible, uh, or at least much less possible um, in the earlier period. If I read you correctly, the Truman presidency in particular sends a kind of signal to the African-American community. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the Truman presidency and how African-Americans responded to that signal? Well, um, I guess, uh, actually, uh, Truman gets sort of a mixed <laughs> a mixed uh, report in some ways in, in the book, um, which I think is uh, true to, uh, to that time. Um, um, 
Truman was sort of the, uh, when, when uh, Roosevelt died and Truman was succeeded him, uh, he was regarded with some suspicion. I mean, this man from Missouri who was in some sense the, the Southerners sort of candidate. Um, uh, uh, in fact, uh, he had replaced Henry Wallace, who was an um, uh, out-and-out liberal, uh, who had been Roosevelt's first, uh, or not his first, but his, his um, uh, sub, uh, previous vice president. And now he succeeded Roosevelt upon his death. Um, and he uh, charted a kind of winding course, really. Uh, the, uh, the forces aligned within the Democratic Party were, uh, uh, were such that the Southern politicians who had had really um, a stranglehold on the party since uh, since the 19th century um, was had been weakened. Um, there were uh, considerable liberal elements and um, had been brought into the party, especially by the Depression crisis. Um, and in some ways, uh, Truman sort of tacked back and forth between those two. Uh, it's probably not too extreme a statement uh, or characterization. So, for example, he was very encouraging uh, his action in setting up the Civil Rights Commission um, that uh, issued a report to secure these rights in, uh, uh, early on in his administration, uh, which recommended um, a number of uh, policies that would uh, uh, improve the conditions of Black Americans with respect to employment discrimination um, and, uh, and a number of other issues. Um, but then he sort of put it in the drawer <laughs> and didn't actually you know, uh, promulgate it until it became apparent that his re-election was in trouble. Um, uh, first of all, uh, at first he feared a challenge by Henry Wallace, who was going to run on a third-party ticket and would collect all the liberal votes, presumably. And then when he embraced, uh, at least initially, the civil rights uh, uh, program, um, or made you know, some nice sounds on that, uh, the Southern uh, Democrats uh, threatened to uh, form a, another party that would take them out of the, uh, the uh, Democratic coalition. And of course they did with the states' rights party, eventually. Um, and so he sort of tacked back and forth. Uh, and at the same time, uh, A. Philip Randolph, who was head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and had uh, threatened a march on Washington back in uh, 1940, uh, 41, uh, 1941, um, that led Roosevelt to uh, uh, adopt some policies with respect to employment, the Fair Employment Practices Commission, to presumably, um, or theoretically at least, um, uh, aid in uh, uh, ending discrimination in defense industries and in the federal government with some mixed success. Um, but he 
thought it was a bridge too far. The second demand that Randolph made, which was to desegregate the armed forces. Um, uh, it seemed that if he was on the cusp, it was pretty clear of ending up in a war, and he did not want to, you know, uh, uh, turn his generals against him. And so he uh, refused to do that. Well, in 1948, Roosevelt, or rather Randolph, um, brought the issue up again, if you, you know, uh, uh, that blacks would, he would organize blacks to resist the draft if uh, such an uh, executive order was not issued. And Truman, uh, in that case, uh, did issue an executive order that uh, desegregated or began the process of desegregating the armed services. Uh, it took a while, but it, it began the process. And in some ways, one could argue that was one of the more uh, significant um, uh, acts of, in terms of uh, dismantling the previous racial regime uh, in terms of the numbers of people affected and the significance of it, um, uh, of anything before the civil rights legislation of the mid-1960s. Um, now, again, he did not, he waited until he had been renominated by the Democratic Party <laughs> before he actually issued the executive order. But he did do it. And this won him um, uh, uh, considerable support, uh, uh, maybe unanimous support, uh, almost, among the black population and critically in a number of the cities that he had to win, like Chicago and uh, and Detroit and so forth in order to win the presidency. And uh, and some analyses suggest that those were critical because he lost the South. He lost, as he expected, he lost out of the South. But he did win um, enough to be elected um, president in his own right. Um, uh, so, uh, so that's, you know, the, again, the kind of mixed record of Mm -hmm. of Truman, but still, nonetheless, the, the proof is in the pudding. In the end, it was uh, amounted to significant changes um, uh, at that point. I don't think I would go so far as to say it was a stimulus to the civil rights movement. That had already begun uh, during the war, during throughout the 1940s, there were efforts to mobilize voting campaigns, which were, and that's voter registration in the South, which were you know, surprisingly successful uh, up to that point. Uh, there had been uh, efforts like um, like CORE's, um, the Congress of Racial Equalities, uh, organized a, a freedom riot, the first freedom riot in 1947. Um, so there are a lot of things going on that were uh, parallel to Truman's own actions uh, during that period. Um, let's move on to 1955, and let me ask just a very simple question. Uh, why specifically in 1955 do you date the beginning of the civil rights movement proper? Well, mainly I, my judgment is that it, it began the kind of, uh, uh, or sparked the kind of broad scale uh, and sustained um, uh, protest. Uh, that would characterize the movement for the next uh, decade. Um, I mean, 1955 and 1965, at least. Um, and um, the other is that the, um, 
1955 was a moment um, when uh, a number of the factors I've, I've mentioned began to uh, national and, and, and local came into um, uh, a kind of conjuncture. Um, I mentioned the that the Cold War had been uh, shaping um, uh, uh, national government policy to some extent and bending it to, and uh, not only the national administrative government, but the uh, that is the presidency and so forth, but the uh, courts as well, bringing it toward uh, uh, more favorable uh, action and opinions with respect to uh, civil rights. Um, obviously, there had been the Brown decision in 1954, 55. Um, uh, there had been... Uh, uh, a number of other decisions around um, housing, um, discrimination. Um, there had been efforts even in the Eisenhower administration uh, to um, uh, try to present a, a portrait of America uh, in terms of its race relations that would have appealed to what was then called the non-aligned nations that the United States was competing with the um, the Soviet Union to win their allegiance. So that's the backdrop. But the other, of course, is the, that you know you'd reached a point uh, in terms of the what I would call the social demographic development uh, in southern cities, places like Montgomery, where um, a sustained movement could be mobilized. So. And if you think about contrasting what happened in Montgomery with, uh, say, Baton Rouge, and, and there are other cities as well uh, scattered about that have had um, either sit-ins at lunch counters in some of the Upper South uh, places or a bus boycott, as happened in Baton Rouge uh, about two and a half years before uh, uh, the events in Montgomery. But that boycott it lasted about two weeks. Uh, it was judged by many as not being as successful as one that would have hoped. Um, but nonetheless, the tactics were uh, adopted by the leaders of the Montgomery bus boycott, which of course lasted about 381 days, I think it was, uh, so uh, more than a year, and um, was able to uh, win a, a court decision that forced the uh, integration of buses in, the, in that city. So, um, so it was a very different uh, uh, scenario, if you will. And I think, the, again, what I said earlier about the con conditions, social, economic, political, that uh, would at least give a chance for success uh, more than, say, you know, uh, earlier such uh, efforts. And I, I might just mention in that context, I mean, that's really early, but, you know, when after Plessy versus Ferguson decision in uh, uh, 1896 and the uh, justifying uh, and, and basically authorizing uh, segregated seating on trains, you had a... Uh, onslaught of uh, municipal regulations, state laws, and so forth, 
to that effect. That is, before you hadn't had, that may have been a private company that decided to segregate, but you didn't have consistently um, uh, state administrations or municipal administrations uh, requiring segregated seating. And one of the responses to that was very much like what happened in Montgomery in 1955, were the um, uh, boycotts uh, about 20 some cities, 26 cities, I think it was, throughout uh, the Upper South at least, uh, had boycotts, much like happened uh, half a century later. But the odds were against them in terms of being able to successfully pull that off and to uh, stop the, uh, the, the onslaught of, of Jim Crow regulations of uh, local as well as long-distance travel. Uh, oh, the other thing I should mention, too, by the way, uh, and, uh, is, which is very, very important. Um, the murder of, of, of Emmett Till uh, earlier that year was a you know, imp- very important uh, development that really um, infuriated the black community. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Rosa Parks herself talks about uh, thinking about that, that killing, um, that atrocious uh, killing, uh, when she made her decision uh, to resist, you know, uh, giving up her seat on that bus. Um, and in fact, she also describes having gone to a public meeting that had taken place a few weeks before, a protest meeting about the uh, Till murder. I mean, not only the murder, of course, but the trial of the killers later, in which they were, of course, set free um, uh, and let go. Um, so that was a context as well of, of people's anger and determination that, you know, basically enough is enough. And, you know, it stops here, um, whatever the consequences. And I think a driving force in being able to mobilize people across all kinds of, of lines of difference in terms of class, that's the black community, class, religion, uh, and what have you, uh, economic status, um, uh, that really was, it should not be taken for granted. I mean, uh, the black community then, no more than now, is not monolithic. And so those are the kind of differences that could, in fact, uh, imperil uh, a broad-based mobilization at an earlier period in time, and perhaps even a later period of time. But at that time, uh, the kinds of things like the Till murder and the, uh, the visceral anger at the, the kind of uh, uh, enforcement of these uh, Jim Crow laws um, uh, made for a mass mobilization that had not been seen, I think, uh, at any point previously. Hmm. I'm interested in talking about how Martin Luther King emerged as the, at least titular, at least the, the leader of the movement, at least uh, as you would see it in the press. And certainly in modern times, he is thought of as the leader of, of the movement. Um, but, but I, I feel like, as a historian, that his rise was hardly inevitable. Can you can you talk a little bit about he how he became associated with the movement and how he 
came to be seen as the leader of it? Yeah. Um, I mean, th- that was one of the motivating, uh, 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 when you asked me earlier about, you know, how I came to write the book, um, I frankly got tired of hearing the movement described, especially every, you know, February, January, February, as Martin Luther King's movement. I mean, yeah, I mean right. possession yeah. of the movement. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I have all kinds of respect, deep respect for Martin Luther King and uh, his leadership and his, his, his character. And um, I just met him briefly in Danville when he came through. Um, but, you know, that's a mischaracterization and a misunderstanding of what the movement was about. Um, uh, now, how did he get there? Well, I mean, he had deep, I think, personal uh, connections uh, or factors that would lead him to that. He was the the son of a prominent, you know, Southern Baptist minister, uh, his, his father and namesake, um, and Atlanta. Um, one of the organizations uh, that was uh, developed in by this time in the South was the Southern uh, Baptist um, organization. I mean, then, of course, we're talking about a black Southern Baptist as opposed to the white Southern Baptist uh, that comes, you know. Uh, so that was a formidable you know, way of organizing, putting people into contact, sharing ideas and, you know, support and so forth and so on. Um, a lot of conflict within it too, so don't romanticize it too much. But um, so through that, King would know about both his, his, his coming up and being sort of groomed for leadership as a son of this, 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 this uh, major leader in the Baptist church and Southern Baptist church. Um, and then um, going to college in the North and well, first at Morehouse and then in the North was uh, graduate degrees. Um, and you know, be you know, uh, his wide reading and exposures uh, to, especially to philosophers, that become part of his his sort of mantra. Um, but more directly, that when he comes as a new minister to uh, Montgomery, um, uh, aside from his own impressive credentials, I'm certain. Uh, all those ministers knew where he was coming from uh, and who he was associated with. But um, he was, uh, as Edie Nixon, who was uh, one of the early principal organizers of the boycott and convinced Rosa Parks you know, to, to back it, um, he was um, uh, someone who, because he was from outside of the community, uh, would be safe from all the various, you know, divisions, tensions, jealousies. I mean, as I referred to earlier, it's not, you know, it's not a picnic, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that, is, that everybody's not all buddy-buddy, uh, really, uh, that you have these 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 competitions and, and, and enmities and so forth. But as a newcomer, he was somebody that, uh, as uh, Edie Nixon puts it, you know, who you could uh, elevate to a leadership role without incurring the kinds of jealousies and other kinds of uh, divisions that were pre-existing uh, within that group of ministers. 
and it was ministers, by the way, because the church was the best, you know, the most organized space, and some some ways a safe space, relatively, uh, for such a movement to be organized, um, as well as a number of other uh, things it, it brought uh, to uh, practical things that, that it contributed to organizing a movement and mobilizing. So anyway, King was, you know, chosen uh, among them. Uh, so that avoids the various kind of you know, competitions and conflicts. And it, it, to his credit, he is ready for the moment. Um, but I think it was the moment, and I try to emphasize this in the book, that when he steps on the stage at Hope Baptist Church um, uh, in Montgomery that evening to argue for and to mobilize people to have a continuing boycott of the buses, um, you know, he's able to frame it not simply in terms of the visceral anger, as I've already talked about, that's moving everybody, that they had the people there ready to act, but also to put it in a, in a context, a moral and a larger context um, of uh, philosophically and in terms of the religion that people knew and was that, that bedrock. Uh, religious discourse uh, that you know made it a uh, a successful movement uh, that is in, in in Montgomery, and I think that continued to play in many other places because the church was you know had been since even before Reconstruction a central place for black life and. And, and social life and, 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 mo- and mobilizations of all sorts. And he successfully brought that into play in creating this. Because there, there were other organizations, of course, I mean, even before uh, 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 Montgomery. Uh, I mentioned CORE already. Um, there was, of course, the NAACP you would mention. Um, all secular organizations that had appeal. But uh, I think... For the people that he had to reach, you know, across the South, um, a church-based movement was um, a much more powerful force. And in that respect, he was, you know, uh, I wouldn't say the indispensable man, but certainly a very important uh, personality um, uh, to emerge in a leadership role um, and bringing with him uh, the, the... Sort of already existing infrastructure for a movement that is the churches. Uh, I mean, this had been something Ella Baker recognized uh, years before that you know this would be the place that you know you, that's where you go first in terms of trying to organize. Uh, in fact, that's even uh, in, in when Thurgood Marshall was going through the South uh, uh, trying to get plaintiffs, you know, for the school desegregation cases. Where did he go? He would go to the churches. That's where the people were. And so uh, so that's the backdrop, I think, of uh, at least the essential backdrop, as I would see it, to King emerging, um, along with others too, but he was you know, the first among equals um, as a, a principal figure in the movement. But the movement had been created that and shaped him over time. I mean, so if you read his discourse, if you Look at his speeches by from 1955 to 1965, certainly 1968. 
they are they they evolve and they evolve in the context of the movement itself. So I always say, you know, the movement made him, not him. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time and we've really only scratched the surface of your book. And I want to tell people that it's a rich and deep book and a good read and you should go out and buy it. But before we let you go, I want to ask a speculative question and you may be hesitant to answer it. I know most historians might be, but I find myself thinking about it a lot. And that is this, and it's a kind of rough formulation, but are, are we on the cusp of another civil rights movement now? <laughs> well, you're quite right about my hesitancy. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that historians should stay in their lane. <laughs> I'm not trying to soothsay. And, uh, but that said, certainly uh, it's a, uh, a natural question coming out of the, the year we've, had, we've seen. I mean, um, if anything was, you know, uh, reminiscent of the kinds of forces, social forces and capacities uh, for mobilization, um, uh, the, the last year, especially last spring and summer, I think uh, uh, are very much fitting that, that pattern. Um, and, uh, and some of the things that I uh, try to describe and uh, underscore in the book, you know, in terms of the, the if a movement's going to come up from the people themselves, as opposed to something that's, you know, uh, uh, motivated by ideolo- ideologies or um, uh, and pronouncements from on high, uh, which I think it wasn't, then it is in their own lived experience that uh, that it has to emerge. And as I've said, the lived experience of living under Jim Crow, of the you know the daily uh, encounters that you had uh, that made it you know ubiquitous in your life, hard to avoid, and that would anger you and. Uh, each time would be the ground that eventually would burst forward with something like the kinds of mobilizations you saw in the mid fifties uh, uh, and in the sixties. Um, the events of last spring and summer are very similar. I mean, um, the uh, and if a movement is to emerge as did, in fact, to some extent, it'll be around things like police brutality, uh, which is, again, a kind of in-your-face, you know, black lives don't matter, um, which is very resonant with, I think, um, certainly my own experience growing up in the South in the mid-1950s. So um, it's hard to say where that's going to go. Um, but um, it's also um, unlikely, I would say, that we've seen the last of that, that kind of George Floyd moment when his life is being casually, almost casually snuffed out um, by a policeman. Um, and who knows what's going to happen to the, in this case, to the perpetrator. Um, so it is very likely there are going to be um, 
continue to be other similar reactions, public reactions. Um, and um, it's also clear that there are uh, a fair number of organizations, as was the case in the mid-50s, that are have been mobilized and are uh, fully capable of, uh, of mobilizing in reaction uh, to uh, any future developments. So I guess I would, the safest thing to say is that we've not seen the last of it. Um, and how it's going to turn out depends on a multitude of factors um, that uh, some may be predictable, some less so. Well, that, that was, uh, you do honor to the historian's profession because that was very carefully worded and, <laughs> and said. <laughs> I appreciate it. Let me ask you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Um, well, I have been attracted for a long time, and it, it shows up in some ways in the, in the, um, in the current book on the movement, um, to uh, looking at the emergence of a leadership group, a leadership, I don't want to call it a class, but um, in the interwar period. I've been, the more I've read, and I keep bumping up into it, <laughs> into it, you might say, uh, the people, both scholars, um, and uh, but a whole generation that is the generation that preceded, you know, the, um, the developments of the fifties and sixties, um, and uh, in some some sense the foundation, both in terms of of um, their thinking and in terms of their uh, experiences and their, their activities. Um, so, I mean, first, you know, a figure like uh, W.B. Du Bois, but I think actually the generation that comes after him is particularly intriguing to me. And so I uh, have been fiddling around with uh, uh, looking at biographies and, and uh, developments during that period, particularly the 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and perhaps 50s, but I think... Uh, that interwar period is particularly intriguing. And I find uh, the more I read of it, some similarities to the, um, certainly the intellectual development within um, uh, the black generation that comes out of the um, uh, civil rights era uh, in the late 60s and into the 70s and 80s, uh, that, uh, uh, some similarities and some, you know, uh, uh, interesting counterpoints to that earlier generation, and so I want to want to probe that a bit and see where it goes. Well, we look forward to seeing that work. Uh, let me tell everybody who's listening that we've been talking to Thomas C. Holt about his book, The Movement: The African American Struggle for Civil Rights. It's just out from. Oxford University Press. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you've been listening to In Conversation, a podcast that we're doing with Oxford University Press. And finally, let me say thank you, Tom, for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure.